You know what that sound means. It's time for the Michigan DNR's Wild Talk Podcast. Welcome to the Wild Talk Podcast, where representatives from the DNR's Wildlife Division chew the fat and shoot the scat about all things habitat, feathers, and fur. With insights, interviews, and your questions answered on the air, you'll get a better picture of what's happening in the world of wildlife here in the great state of Michigan. Welcome to Wild Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Leitner, and joining me today is the spectacular Hannah Shower. Woo, spectacular. I like that. <laughs> today, we are excited to share in our lively panel discussion on captive wildlife with you. This episode will be a bit longer, but it should be a great discussion and well worth the listen. As usual, later in the show, we'll answer some of your questions from the mailbag, and sometime during the episode, we will also be revealing the winners of our Wild Talk podcast camp mugs, and you can find out how you can win one too. We'll also be talking with Bill Scullin, one of our wildlife field operation managers, and hearing about the spring and summer work that's going on in the Upper Peninsula region of the state. Before we dive into those updates, let's shine our wildlife spotlight on the Canada goose. Canada geese are a common sight throughout the state and can be seen on most of Michigan's waters. In fact, Canada geese nest in every Michigan county, but are most common in the southern third of the state. You may even see or hear Canada geese all year round in some parts of the state. Like several other species of wildlife, the Canada goose was probably driven to near extinction by early settlers in Michigan. In 1928 and 1964, we released geese onto several sites to try and increase the population in the state. This program was not unlike those conducted in other states and on many national wildlife refuges. Populations grew rapidly in southern Michigan due to the abundant lakes and wetlands. These large birds have a four to six foot wingspan and can weigh anywhere from six and a half pounds to almost 20 pounds, depending on the individual. In addition to their large size, their long black necks and white cheeks and chin strap make this bird easily recognizable. Canada geese primarily feed on vegetation like grasses and sedges. However, in the fall and into the winter, they may consume more seeds and berries. And then in the spring, a pair will build a nest, usually near the water, in a location where they have a good view from all directions. Nests on muskrat lodges are common, and females will build the nest and incubate the eggs while the male guards the nest. They'll lay about two to eight eggs and only have one brood a year. Those incubation periods for the eggs last about a month. Canada geese are considered to mate for life, where they generally stick with the same mate throughout the year. One interesting thing that I had learned um, while I was looking into some of these tidbits uh, was that Canada geese will pick a mate that is similarly sized to them. So a larger individual will pick a larger sized mate or a smaller individual will pick a smaller sized mate. However, but in a given pair, the male is still the larger of the two sexes. Now, Canada geese usually do not breed until they're about four years old, uh, and young geese or goslings remain with their parents for their first year. In the spring and fall, you are likely to see groups of geese flocking together and migrating in their characteristic V formation. Yes, I'm sure we're all somewhat familiar, definitely with geese. I think everybody has a goose story, but also seeing the characteristic V shape flying through the sky. 
Now, in general, geese have benefited from human changes to the landscape. Urban areas with lakes and ponds often offer all of the resources that geese need to survive. And during the summer months, Canada geese can be a problem for some property owners. Most human-goose conflict is associated with urban settings where manicured lawns are in close proximity to water and molting geese. These geese may also take advantage of large agricultural fields in the fall and winter. These areas typically provide high-energy foods, which allow some geese to stay in Michigan throughout the winter. Yes, and later this episode, we'll share some tips with you on how to handle nuisance issues with geese if they are in your area. But next up, we'll be hearing from Bill Scullins. So stick around to find out what is happening with Habitat in the UP. Pure Michigan hunt applications are on sale now. If you want your shot of what is considered Michigan's ultimate hunt, pick up a $5 application or two. There's no limit to the number you can buy. If you're one of the three lucky winners, you'll get a hunting prize package worth thousands, as well as licenses for elk, bear, spring and fall turkey, antlerless deer, and first pick at a managed waterfowl area for a reserved hunt. Purchase anywhere hunting licenses are sold or online at michigan.gov pmh. Welcome back. Here with us today in our virtual recording studio is Bill Scullin, a field operations manager in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Bill, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. So spring and summertime is pretty busy for all staff across the whole state, but you're from the UP. So could you tell us a little bit about what uh, key projects the UP wildlife staff will be focused on this season? Well, it runs the gamut. Uh, as we're into spring season, the baby wildlife season, we're into full-blown wildlife nuisance calls. We've had a plethora of nuisance bear calls already. Uh, dealt with quite a few roadkill moose already. Um, we're in the midst of our research trapping for wolves. The staff are all doing that. We have a new mentoring program trying to train some new staff on how to do that task. Um, we're about to approach the peregrine banding season. For us, that means a couple of pairs in Marquette, some on the International Bridge in, Christ- in the Sioux, and out on Isle Royal, and also on some bluffs in the Keweenaw. Those are fun adventures, but lots of nuisance wildlife uh, as people are home. Last year, we had an unprecedented year of calls on uh, wildlife observations. This year, we're, we're dealing with it as well. Uh, we're also dealing with some depredation issues, things of that nature. Those will be occurring now for and forever. <clears throat> That's a kind of a constant phenomenon for us. But, you know, as we approach the spring season, um, our, ha- our staff are very happy to be reengaging more so this year than last year. They're able to in the field work, uh, doing getting out doing habitat projects, working with partners and working uh, on their products they've had planned. We have some pretty ambitious plans across the region and people are working on uh, up in Barrick at the Sturgeon River Sloughs. It's a managed waterfall area we have. Uh, we just completed a nearly $700,000 rebuild of the, some of the dikes and our pumping infrastructure there with Ducks Unlimited. And we have a little bit of wrap up there. Staff are working on putting in a, a drop off push out area for people to launch their boats and things of that nature and some pump structures. We have a dedication pr- project coming up with DU this summer yet there. Gems across the region. Our staff are heavily engaged on maintaining our gems infrastructure. So that's the hunter walking trails, receding trails, fixing roads, uh, gates, things of that nature. That's that's a lot of work. We have a lot of them on the landscape uh, that we we are responsible for and some with our partners that we have to work with as well. They're heavily utilized and they're really important areas for us. And we want to make sure that they're they're ready to go by fall. So staff are working on those this summer. <clears throat> a lot of tree planting products are wrapping up right now. 
we just put a couple hundred oak trees and multiple units and these are oak, oak trees oak saplings so they're anywhere from six feet to ten feet tall the, the staff are planting in various areas and the idea be is we're trying to hedge the the bet towards getting uh oak acorn production as quickly as possible a lot of these areas especially in the eastern Upper peninsula go in areas that are heavily impacted by beech bark disease so we had lost the hard mass component in those stands so now we're trying to restore it as much as we possibly can uh, they do some apple tree planting as well and wildlife shrubs a lot of those are associated with our gems and other high focus high visitation areas in escanaba unit uh, our technician Colford Lubin has a very ambitious 150 acre warm season grass planting he's going to be doing this year so that's a that's a huge project in itself uh getting preparation for that they're doing a little bit of that up at all train basin on a marquette unit as well so there's lots of habitat work i mean the the, the folks on the ground have in every unit they have am, ambitious projects to be accomplished either through contractors or themselves in newberry they have a birding trail project they're doing that encompasses multiple areas and, and across the, the unit which is a very high profile project and works for them um we just concluded our our well we haven't concluded it but we got our our spring prescribed burning uh done before we got spring green up so we were able to burn 800 acres this year uh two burns one in the one in the sioux unit and one in the newberry kuzno unit uh 500 acres and 334 acres respectively so those were we're glad to have those we have other birds prepped that hopefully as the summer progresses we're able to get to those in the summer or fall so there's a there's a lot of work people are doing um the, the key thing is the staff want to get back on the ground and they want to they want to demonstrate their relevance to their constituents and to the public and they want to be they want to improving habitat for wildlife and they want to be improving recreational opportunities yeah there is certainly not a shortage of ambitious work to be done in the up that's a lot of work and a lot of acreage that's amazing yeah, also you totally caught me by surprise when you said roadkill moose <laughs> is not a species i think of when we think about animals that get hit in the road yeah we've had we had two this weekend so we had a bull and we had an unknown animal uh, we also had another individual who found a dead calf because the calfing season's passed us already uh, so we've had eight so far this winter the spring that we've, we've had incurred where people have hit the animals unfortunately you know at least four of those animals were pregnant cows um that we lost the cow and you know and or the cat in uterine or you know adjacent with the with the with the collision so you know that that affects our trajectory of our moose population significantly that is our number one source of mortality you know and usually the last couple of years the roadkill incidents last year was very low because there was nobody driving last year uh in the spring as you recall um but you know it has been basically exceeded our annual sort of source of growth for the population. This is the amount of mortality we have. So it's a significant issue for us. Yeah. Is there a, um, so like with deer, we know that they're, they're moving at dawn and dusk. Do moose move the same way? Is there any particular time people should be careful or a little more observant when they're on the roads? There's traditional areas where we have a lot of the, the, the occlusions occur. Those areas have been posted and signed, but typically it's at night, you know, and as you can imagine, it's a large, very dark animal stands you know seven to eight feet tall at the shoulder um and we had one this weekend hit by a truck one was hit by a car um you know and usually they're catastrophic collisions fortunately we've had no you know one injured this year from the public with these collisions you know because it's, it's as you can imagine hitting a thousand pound animal speed can be quite significant yeah well we, we tell people in those, in travel in those countries those roads just watch out be cautious and you know and their eyes don't reflect like a deer so you don't see that interesting i didn't know that that's excellent information to know. Thanks, Bill. Um, you had mentioned some ambitious oak samplings and trying to increase acorn production. Wh why are you focusing on oaks? What kind of benefits is that going to provide for? Is it wildlife or hunters or? 
What are we looking it's for really, here? Well, it's primarily focused on wildlife benefits, but obviously that'll benefit the, the, the user groups out there that focus on hunting species. You know, the oak trees, we're planting primarily red oak. Um, if we had white oak as a more viable source, we'd plant more white oak in areas because it's less susceptible to oak wilt, which we do have on a landscape across Upper Peninsula. But nonetheless, planting oak, is it provides a high-energy acorn, a nut, hard mass, we call it, uh, that's highly valued by a wide variety of wildlife species, everything from turkeys to wood ducks to bear to deer um, and a whole bunch of other species that people value. Uh, we've, had, we've had GPS collared bears that have, when we had high acorn production like last year, um, that have traveled long distances across the landscape when those, when those acorns start hitting the ground. I mean, they'll move 60, 70 miles to a stand, be in that stand for a period of days, and then they'll move back. Uh, and they do this repeatedly. So I mean, they, they know where these resources are in the landscape and they're valued, very valued resources. And hunters who pick up on that as well, obviously can benefit from that as well, knowing where those natural foods occur on the landscape. <clears throat> as I mentioned before, in the east end of the Upper Peninsula, where we had beech historically as a dominant forest type, it's pretty much gone. Um, so we've lost that hard mass component uh, that historically was very valuable, for, especially for bears. Uh, so, you know, what we're trying to do over time, we've been planting oak trees for the last 15 years, you know, across the, the, at least the Kuzno and the Shingleton uh, units, as well as Newberry and the Sioux and Marquette um, and Escanaba um, to a lesser extent. But that's where we had beach primarily. Um, they've been planting thousands of trees on the landscape. Every year they plant a couple hundred trees in each unit, so um, in select areas. And these are these are uh, pretty difficult <laughs> trees to plant, as you can imagine. It's usually a bare root tree with you know you got to have either you know, a planting crew with multiple people to shovel to dig up a hole back up to put a tree in the ground, or a tractor with a large you know, rotary spade to try and make the holes for these trees. So it's it's a, it's not like sticking a seedling in the ground where you can do a thousand an hour, you know. So it's it's a it's a different dynamic to get these things put in the ground. Yeah, a six foot tall tree is not a small tree to be planting. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's hard to just logistically move them across the landscape, get them out the, under the bush to plant them, let alone dig the hole. So, <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, are there any large projects, or are any of these projects things that might impact visitors to a game or wildlife area? Like, are there any closures that folks should be aware of while out and about this summer? We don't have any closures in any of our areas that you know, we're planning, even, even when we're doing infrastructure work. Our, our goal is to have almost all of our fall, all of our site prep with the gems, the Sturgeon River Saloos, Autrain Basin, um, places like that where we do a, historically a lot of work. Um, and those are kind of focal point areas to have that work done prior to fall. So, you know, our, our goal is to have that done by mid-August, you know, so the planning can take uh, and or the infrastructure preparation being done. So that way when people, visitors arrive in the fall, typically, you know, um, our traditional visitors arrive in the fall. They'll see those places at the optimal condition. Um, now, there's visitors use them in those areas now, um, but we generally do not displace them while we're doing our work. So, yeah, sounds like you've got a lot of work going on up there. Um, and luckily, folks can t pick a spot and head out and not have to worry about any kind of closures. So that's always you know, helpful. That's something we typically don't do unless it's, it's very localized. If we're doing a you know infrastructure project, and it's usually very short time duration, and it'll be signed adequately. So. Any other uh, noteworthy regional items you want folks to know about? or I think the biggest thing you guys always reinforce this as well. This is the wildlife interactions. You know, people out there, they interact with wildlife, you know, keep their distance, especially with moose. You know, people stop to view a moose on the side of the road because they're feeding the wetlands that are adjacent to the highways. Uh, so they'll be right there. And um, while they may seem very placid, they can be very aggressive very quickly, especially if they're with the army. So keep your distance, stay in the vehicle, 
watch out for traffic. It's a, it's a significant traffic hazard when people stop, multiple cars stop. Same thing with bears. Uh, we have lots of situations where people are habituating bears by feeding them. We have issues everywhere from Drummond Island to the Keweenaw where people are feeding bears out their back door like they do with raccoons. And it may seem like a novel idea at the time, but unfortunately, these ideas always have negative consequences for wildlife. And invariably, the wildlife suffer for this because they either get into trouble, significant trouble in some cases, and they have to be euthanized or, or they cause harm, cause damage, physical damage to property. Um, so, again, you know, show, show some restraint and appreciate wildlife from a distance if you can. Um, and if you incur something on the landscape, you see a sick animal, you see an injured animal, something like that, contact any office, call the wrap line if you have to, and we'll deal with it accordingly. Now, the UP is magnificent, so I suspect a lot of people will be vacationing up there over the next couple of months and well into the fall. While they're camping at a, at a park or just out, you know, in a wilderness area, is there anything they can do to make to reduce their risk of encountering wildlife? Yeah, I mean, you know, we live in bear country and it's not the same as living in, in you know, grizzly country, but nonetheless, it is bear country. So if you're if you're rough camping, you know, um, always keep your food separate, cooking place separate from where you're, you're sleeping. Uh, keep it locked up in a tree if you can. Um, if you put it in a vehicle, we've had instances of bears breaking into vehicles. So <clears throat> it's it's a, it's a more of a problem. Where we have habituated spots. Um, but generally, if you're out in the in the countryside camping, dispersed camping, it's not as much of an issue. But again, you know, we always ask people to respect where you're at, watch tree cutting. You know, if you're if you're cutting trees down for whatever reason you shouldn't be. Um, if you're if you're gathering uh, firewood on the ground, that's permissible. Um, watch your litter, things of that nature, your latrine issues. Um, but you know, the the bigger thing with wildlife is just you know, be careful what you do with your food. That's what's going to attract them. The scent of the food is what's going to attract wildlife. And maybe you may have unwelcome bitters in the middle of the night, whether they be a, a herd of raccoons or, or a bear. Those are good reminders. Thank you, Bill. And we, we have seen a tremendous uptick in recreational people across the landscape last year. I mean, every state park is like the 4th of July all year round. Um, dispersed camping is full all the time, everywhere. Um, four-wheelers all over the landscape, kayaks all over the place, paddleboards all over the place. Um, it's just tremendous amount of usage that's out there in the landscape. So another thing we tell people to do too is have some patience, have some space for those other recreations that are out there in the landscape. You know, they may they may be wanting quiet space. Some people may be using an ATV. Um, sometimes these things can be in conflict. But please, you know, we have tell people to have a little bit of patience, a little bit of space for those around us that are using the outdoors. Yeah, that's an excellent reminder. I think just about all of the camping reservations are pretty booked throughout the rest of the summer, which is remarkable. We want people to get outside. We just want you to be considerate and respectful of both people and wildlife while you're out there. And, you know, you bring up a good point about camping firewood. Um, that's a big deal, you know, bringing firewood from across the, the area. So if you're going someplace, you know, you're going to be camping, buy your firewood there, buy it locally. Don't truck firewood across the bridge. Don't bring it from across the state. Don't bring it from outside the county. Um, because, you know, Emerald Ashbor is here for that. Oakville is here because of that. Um, beach bark is here because of that. Lots of diseases that completely alter our forest landscape, which completely alter the wildlife habitat out there are because, you know, in part, large part because of human induced activity. Moving firewood is one of those primary vectors for moving these pathogens across the landscape. Excellent. All good reminders for folks getting out and about. Um, so we really appreciate that. No problem. So thanks so much for joining us today, Bill. We, it was great to hear about all of the great work for wildlife happening in the Upper Peninsula. Um, so we really appreciate you taking a few minutes to share those with us. 
I, I forgot to mention one thing I did forget to mention is that we have Heather Shaw on staff now. So we have we have a new biologist in, in Shingleton, which is great. So now we're fully staffed. Um, you know, so we have a new person up there working with Don Brown, our technician there. So we have a new team there and um, very ambitious, both of them. So I expect great things come out of that unit now. So not that they haven't in the past, but they will get it be better now. So again, Heather comes to us from Rough Grouse Society. <clears throat> she was the regional biologist for the Great Lakes States for the last five years. So, you know, a lot of us have worked with her in the past, that capacity. So she has a tremendous amount of familiarity with staff already and obviously with a lot of our issues. So all right. Thanks, Bill. We'll let you uh, go and get back to all all the excitement that you have going on and hopefully no more no more moose calls. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, I hope Agreed. so. Um, so next month, we'll be hearing an update from the Southwest region. Make sure you stick around because next is our panel discussion about captive wildlife. So don't go anywhere. There are many camping and lodging opportunities available in Michigan state parks. When you choose state park campgrounds, you get more than just a campsite. State parks offer a diverse range of recreational opportunities, including hands-on instructional classes, nature programs, places to fish, boat launches, family-friendly events, and much more. Reservations can be made six months in advance, so why wait? Visit MIDNRreservations.com or call 1-800-44-PARKS to make a reservation. Welcome back to Wild Talk. Today we are going to dive into some of the reasons why natural resource agencies remove captive wildlife from the homes of people holding them as pets or rehab animals without proper licenses and training. We are excited to have some great folks here to lend their perspectives on this important and sometimes controversial topic. Joining us today are Dr. Dan O'Brien, wildlife veterinarian with the DNR, Dr. Kimberly Sines, epidemiologist and veterinarian for the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, and Dr. Jim Sikarski, retired zoo and wildlife veterinary professor with the MSU College of Veterinary Medicine. We appreciate you all taking the time to discuss this topic with our listeners today. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We're really looking forward to this discussion today. Now, occasionally it's brought to our attention that unfortunately wildlife have been held in captivity by someone who is not licensed to do so. And we then have to go in and remove the animal or animals from the unlicensed person's custody. Now, many times people, when they, when they know this kind of encounter is happening, they'll take to social media or they'll send us their opinions on the matter. And to just just to give our listeners a sample of the types of comments we receive, um, I'll read what a typical message is. You claim to care about animals, yet you punish people for helping them. How about offering to help? Um, another typical comment we can receive is, I'm writing to you with the utmost disbelief and disgust at the actions you took. These animals were loved and were lovingly taken care of, and your actions were just soulless. Uh, so as you can hear, these comments we receive are often not supportive of, of our actions. And people often are saying that there's no good reasons for us to remove wildlife from a person's possessions and that there, there has to be some other action that we could take or should have taken. So my question to the panel is, this sort of situation can obviously evoke a lot of emotion, a lot of strong emotion, especially in people. And is it true that there are no good reasons for the DNR to remove wild animals from an unlicensed person? There are lots of good reasons for it. So no, it is not true 
that there's no good reason. I think one of the main reasons is the humane welfare of that animal. People can lovingly take care of them, but they don't know how to train them to be a a deer or to be a raccoon, to mention a couple of the common ones that that end up in captivity because they're so darn cute as babies. And raising them uh, without a mother, and especially one animal alone, imprints them. That That's an important term. That means that they grow up thinking they're people. And then they, they don't fit in to the wild population when they're let go if they make it that far. That's That's one of the most important reasons, I think is the welfare, feeding them the right things and training them how to find their own food and what things that they need to eat in the wild are really crucially important. And and it's the DNR isn't regulating this just because they feel like they want to be mean and take these cute little animals away from these well-intentioned people. It's their responsibility. There are diseases and parasites that people can get from those animals that can seriously compromise their health or kill them. And certainly the animals themselves often suffer by these well-intentioned people. Yeah, I agree, Jim. I mean, I think I think sometimes um, people who don't work with wildlife all the time lose sight of the fact that, you know, what makes wildlife so cool is that they're wild. Exactly. You know, they're not, they're not domestic animals. They're not pets. They what we value about them is their wildness. And when people take wild animals into captivity and domesticate them, they're depriving those animals of the most valuable thing that they have, which is their wildness. That's their essence. That's I totally agree. That's so important. The way to really appreciate nature and the essence of those animals is to watch them in the wild to study them and, and learn about them. And certainly there's ways to do rehabilitation right, but that's that's getting licensed and uh, doing the required training. And, and then many times the, if the animal is compromised and ends up in human hands, there's quite often something wrong with it. Um, and it might be that it's a disease the, that the population is going to be threatened by, or Tim, Dr. Sines is going to talk to us about some of the diseases that wildlife harbor as a reservoir that can spill over into human populations. And when you take that animal into your home, boy, you're inviting big problems. And the one scary one is rabies. I mean, there's only been a couple of people survived the that disease, and it's still a tremendously important nationally and internationally. And the the reason, reason the DNR says you cannot, even the licensed rehabilitators care for skunks and bats, is those two species can actually be rabid and show no clinical signs of illness. So if the animal is sick and and somebody rescues it and, and keeps it alive and, he, and eventually returns it to the wild, maybe. They returned a carrier that put the rest of the population at risk if it was a disease that the wild population is susceptible to. Yeah, I think Jim has really provided a really, really nice overview of all the many reasons that there are for removing wildlife um, from someone who may be possessing them. And, and from the public health 
side of things, as he's already mentioned, um, anytime a person seeks to have contact with wildlife, there's the chance that they could be injured or exposed to a disease um, that could, worst case scenario, kill them or other people that they allow to have contact with this animal while they have it in their possession. So, you know, these are activities that certainly concern us from a standpoint of the health of people. And then one other thing just to mention briefly is that I something I don't think people think about is that what what we're here to do as an agency, the DNR, is to manage natural resources that belong to everybody, that belong to all the people. Uh, that's our mission. And no one person has the right to take a public resource, a, a publicly owned wild animal, and make it their own possession. It's just fundamentally goes against the way we manage natural resources in North America. Hunting is a good example. You just can't go out and hunt and shoot anything. You got to follow the rules, the seasons, the the bag limits, the quotas. You got to buy a license. You got to play by the rules. And wildlife rehabilitation is regulated in a similar fashion by the agencies in charge. There's so many things that we could spend hours talking about diseases and parasites and the welfare of the animals, whether it's behavioral or or physical, the, the risk to the people and the animals and the population. Boy, it is important that somebody that knows what they're doing as far as the diseases and the parasites and the risks and the benefits uh, helps regulate these activities. People are usually well-meaning and just trying to help, but what are some of the downsides of it from the animal's animal welfare perspective? Why isn't taking an animal and trying to take care of it always a good thing for that animal? Well, I can think of a, a really good example of many years ago, and it was a licensed rehabilitator even that brought in a, a juvenile red-tailed hawk that had fallen out of the nest and there was no way to put it back because of the, the nest. And also that licensed, well-intentioned person took it home and they're meat eaters, right? And a, a cheap, ready supply of meat is liver. She fed that baby hawk liver for four days and his bones turned to rubber because there's no calcium in liver and it's very high in phosphorus. And that animal couldn't stand up, couldn't move its wings. Eventually, um, its ribs collapsed. Uh, I, I tried taking care of it and treated it with calcium gluconate IV and trying to pull it back, but it was too late. And it only took four days on that inappropriate diet. And it, it was almost intuitive that this, this is meat that they eat liver in the wild, but they eat the bones and they eat the muscle and they eat the stomach contents. They get all those things. So it's challenging. I, I used to get 700 rats a week. That's how many birds of prey we were taking care of. And you feed the whole animal to the, to the patients. And uh, it's, it's really not just important to know, but sometimes it's very hard to get what you need. So it's much different than, say, taking care of a dog or a cat or a domestic animal. It sounds like it's a lot more complex. Sure. Well, you could feed a, a baby raccoon just like you could a puppy. But then when you go to let it go in the wild, where's it going to find puppy chow? So nutritionally, you might meet its needs with a commercially available diet. And certainly when the baby, if we're talking mammals, 
Um, milk, the, the different formulas for milk for all the different animals, whether it's a, a rodent or or a, a carnivore or a, a herbivore, that like a, a hoofed animal like a deer, they're all completely different. And you just can't take a bottle of milk out of the refrigerator and feed it to them without causing diarrhea and other issues. And, and then certainly you might be able to get the right formula. And, but then when it comes time to wean them onto what they need to find in the wild, if you don't know what the mother's going to feed the baby or what the baby's going to find, in the wild, it's really hard to do it correctly. And there are behavioral issues too. You know, wild animals are not used to being around people. There, There is a natural tendency to avoid people. And that is to the, that's an adaptation that is to the advantage of that population of wild animals. They're not used to being treated as pets. Any animal can adapt to anything to some extent, but they're not. Wild animals are never going to behave normally. They're never going to manifest their normal behavior in a situation where they're always around people and they're being treated like domestic animals. And, you know, Jim has had these sorts of calls and I've had calls uh, while I've worked for the DNR where they're are what we call habituated animals, where there were animals that were either raised in the wild because they lost their mothers, they were raised by people, or, you know, they were they were taken by an individual and kept in captivity, and they become habituated to humans, and they, they, they behave in a way that... Um, Is that normal? Yeah. It's, it's abnormal. Exactly. And, they, and, you know, it's all it's, you know, to use the deer example, which Jim has seen a bunch of these, you know, it's all uh, people love little fawns and they love having them around and they love to feed them out of their hand, you know. But then when those fawns grow up and they start to manifest their normal reproductive behavior. Oh, um, especially if it's a buck. Yeah. Boy, yeah, they're, become they're aggressive. There are people, or they think you're a deer during the rut. That's dangerous either way. Yeah, right. And they've got antlers, and and then all of a sudden the people are like, you know, you got to get rid of this animal. Well, you know, there's no saving that animal at that point. That animal has can never go back into the wild, and people don't want to deal with it. People, even if they were well-intentioned, have destroyed the normal life of that animal. It's never going to be able to survive in the way it was intended. But those bucks kill people because they are not afraid of people. And another dimension is they think that people are an adversary during the breeding season. You know, they're territorial and aggressive. You don't dare turn your back on them. And... You don't dare look at them to challenge them. I mean, you just don't do it because they're going to kill you. And that's, that happens every year. Somebody um, gets killed by a, quote, tame deer. And uh, Yeah, and I'll just jump in on this issue of well-intentioned people, you know, having these outcomes that are not at all what they had in mind. And when we're talking about species like 
bats or skunks or raccoons, either bats or carnivore species in particular, one of the things that we have to be concerned about is rabies. And uh, because it is the most fatal um, virus that we know of, and people can survive being exposed to rabies, we have treatments, but people have to recognize that they've been exposed. And so one of the situations that is so difficult for all of us to deal with, and nobody in public health likes these types of situations when they come up. But people who well-intentioned take in uh, a baby raccoon or a couple of orphan baby raccoons and decide they're going to raise them, they may have the neighbors come over uh, and help take care of these babies. They may unfortunately get bit by the animal. I'm trying to take care of it one way or the other. You know, it comes to a doctor's attention um, or to um, folks in public health attention that, that somebody, you know, a person has been bitten, for for example, by, by one of these baby raccoons or has handled it. And so then we're put in this position of trying to decide, could this animal have rabies? Um, could this animal be exposing people who've had contact with it to a disease like rabies? And so what ends up happening is that um, unfortunately, we don't have an easy way to test an animal for rabies other than euthanizing it humanely and testing its brain. And we, so we have to kill it. And so we have to take that that baby animal um, and have it euthanized and test it and determine whether or not it was rabid and whether people might need to receive treatment um, to prevent rabies. So, um, so that's just a, you know another example of something that's very well intentioned. You know, you're going to help this animal actually ends up causing its death. So, um, and maybe if you'd left it. You know, in the wild, it would have survived. Uh, uh, so. And I've had people say, well, why can't you just vaccinate it like a vaccinated dog or, or a cat? Well, the vaccines that are developed for dogs and cats are not proven to be effective if it's not an animal that the vaccine was specifically made for. The other point with this, because these animals often appear fine and healthy, so um, we can't, because species like a bat or a skunk or a raccoon, they are the natural reservoir for rabies virus. So that's the species in which this virus naturally circulates in the wild amongst, you know, other bats or other skunks, etc. And we don't, we do know a lot about how rabies behaves in mammals, for, and it is fatal to most mammals. Um, but when you're talking about a reservoir species, the species that harbors the virus in nature, we don't know how long that animal might seem normal and healthy, but still be able to spread the virus to another raccoon or to a person. So just observing the animal you know, and their health, whether they're acting fine, eating, etc., may not be sufficient to tell us that this is this this animal does or doesn't have rabies. The only way to know is to look for the virus in their brain. You know, in nature, viruses, you know, have to propagate themselves. And so they don't want to be so deadly that they kill everything immediately. The strains of virus evolve, you know, to get themselves passed from one animal to the next. Um, and so, you know, that's our concern with rabies is that the animal could look perfectly healthy and be acting normal and eating, but still be shedding the virus. And so we can't tell by looking at the animal, we have to test it. 
Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for addressing the treatment that wild animals have to go through. I feel like there's this huge misconception that all animals can receive the same type of treatment, and that's just not the case. If you take in a skunk, it's not going to receive the same treatment that your cat is going to receive if it, if it appears ill. And it's great that you address that. So we've been talking a lot about animal welfare. We've talked a bit about the individual welfare of a person and potentially their families when they take in these captive animals. What about the bigger picture? Taking a wild animal into the your possession without a license, does it pose risks to a greater human population? And I, I think we were heading this way before this question. So tell us, is there bigger problems at hand? Well, I think that COVID is a real good example of that, that that they think it um, might have originated from bats. Bats are a common species that carry viruses that are dangerous to a lot of other species. And certainly the, the responsibility of the health departments and the agencies in that to regulate and try to prevent that is obvious. And and the, the people that don't want to listen, they, they, they oftentimes are so secure in that they think they're doing the right thing, or even though they know they're they're doing the wrong thing, they're not going to tell anybody. And so they're not going to, if they get bitten, they're not going to report themselves. But technically, when one of those animals bites somebody, you're supposed to report it to your community health department. And then they, like Kim said, they're going to have to test it. But if you don't tell anybody, you might just get sick and put your family at risk and put people at at risk in your church or your school if your kids take that bat to school. I mean, Kim's, Kim could tell us horror stories about what people have done and how how they have to do a trace back and find out that uh, that cute little animal potentially exposed 50 people to a lethal fatal disease. And, and there's parasites that you can't tell or see. Printer, every raccoon in the wild carries a roundworm parasite that is very serious. And it, the eggs in the feces will last for a year. And if they're accidentally ingested in humans, they can cause blindness or death because they migrate through the brain. That's really scary stuff. And that's the cutest little raccoon that is shedding thousands of those larvae in its feces every day. Yeah, and that's... Go ahead, Dan. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and, and that's, you know, I mean, rabies and raccoon roundworm. I mean, those are just a couple of examples, but I mean, the public should understand. I mean, there are literally thousands of these diseases that can be transmitted between humans and animals. And there's there are surely a lot of diseases that we don't even know about yet. To, to get to, to your original question, Rachel, I mean, that is, if you're looking at the big picture, if you're looking at the population level, one of the reasons that the majority of the new infections in humans are coming from wildlife populations is because the circumstances of human society have changed to the point where we're making incursions onto areas that formerly used to belong to wildlife. You know, we're building into their areas or we're exploiting them for food or or medicine or the the pet trade or there's any number of environmental or we're destroying their habitat so they're going to come into more contact with humans than they would have in the past all of those things 
increase the interaction between wild populations and humans. And when you do that, you're just providing a perfect opportunity for diseases that used to just circulate in wildlife populations to spill over into humans and into our domestic animals. You know, there, there's a reason there are, there are reasons that have evolved for wildlife to be separate from humans. And this is just another one of them. Yeah. And for those of us that that work in this realm of human health and wildlife health and production animal health, you know, there's this concept that we use. It's called One Health. And, um, and Dan has described what One Health is perfectly. It's it's considering all of the factors that are involved in a disease system based on the animals, the people, and the environment. And so all of these things have a role to play in how diseases are spread through any population, whether it's animals or people. And I think for a lot of the listeners, before COVID-19, most people really did not have a good understanding of these concepts and, you know, we, we all know about influenza because, you know, we think of influenza as a human disease, but it's really, this is a, another very disease very similar to COVID in that there's reservoirs in animals, there's strains of the virus that circulate in animals, and this is a virus that can mix and match um, different pieces of the virus from, an, you know, the different animals and humans and come up with a brand new virus that you know, that nobody has immunity to. And so every year we have to change the influenza vaccine because of these input from these different species into the virus that circulates in people. So that's a, a virus with pandemic potential that we deal with all the time and everyone's very familiar with. But I think before COVID, nobody really understood very well um, just this whole interface um, between people and animals, not in a real way. And, um, you know, this this has really gotten everyone's attention as to why those of us who work in this area are very concerned about these situations where we've got people or domestic animals in contact with wildlife when that is not naturally and normally something that that should be happening. Um, and we have to think about where we put our pig farms, for example, or you know where we decide to build our houses. And I guess that's one thing that has come out of this, I think, is it does the general public does have a better understanding of you know these concerns that we have as agencies, whether it's the DNR and protecting the wildlife population in Michigan or protecting the human population, you know, from the standpoint of public health, you know, those are the, you know, sort of the very big picture that we're trying to help people understand. And the other thing I think that I want to bring up is that I think people do hear these conservation messages. They're very concerned about wildlife health and the wildlife population. And so that's where some of this comes from. They hear that bats are threatened or, you know, that a certain species is losing its habitat. And so they want to do something to help uh, as an individual. And so that's sometimes what drives people to try to help an individual animal. And so it's very hard to understand or maybe accept that helping that individual is not helping the population as a whole, that this little effort that you're making is not helping, you know, just as an example, um, 
on the public health side, we will not infrequently learn about people who find a bat on the ground outside of their home. And, you know, they've heard these messages that bats are threatened, um, they've lost their habitat, maybe white-nose syndrome, you know, they just have this general message that this is an endangered or threatened species. And so they take this bat in. In Michigan, you know, most of the bats that have contact with people or pets are big brown bats, and then little brown bats would be the second most common. These are the bats that live around us in our homes, in our attics, in the barns uh, around our homes. And um, they are not threatened or endangered yet, but they're not. Um, so they're not, you know, a, a, group, a population that's being impacted by something like white nose syndrome. And when you take that bat into your house and you try to feed it or you have your kids try to feed it, you are potentially exposing your family to rabies. Bats are the most common species to test positive for rabies um, in Michigan. And so these are situations where we're going to end up testing that bat. And not in all, not infrequently, these bats uh, will test positive because they've, they're on the ground. They're, they can't fly. They're sick. And a sick bat could be a rabid bat. And so then we end up having to have multiple people receive rabies post-exposure treatment, which is a treatment that is you know, it's not simple. It's not one shot. You have to um, return to the doctor uh, several times to finish the treatment. It takes two to four weeks to finish the treatment, and it is also expensive and, um, you know, can be painful. So um, these are, you know, sort of the consequences of people wanting to do something to help wildlife populations. And they may not understand um, the disease risk. And so I think that's probably one of the things that those of us on this discussion today uh, are trying to get across is that, you know, there is there's a risk to the animal and there's also a risk um, to the person and the people involved. And another aspect to that that I think the public often doesn't think about, too, is that these diseases don't just move one way. They, I mean, we tend to think about the ones that move from wild animals to humans, but it's entirely possible for humans to infect wild animals with diseases. That's you know, right. This happens with tuberculosis. Uh, tuberculosis mm -hmm. Uh, human tuberculosis has become common in wild elephants in some places in, in Africa. And, and so if we really care about the welfare of these wildlife populations, part of that responsibility is also shielding them from our diseases too. I think one of the things that our listeners might be trying to decide then is, well, if we do find an animal, then what should we do? And I think many times if it looks reasonably normal, if it's a fawn hiding under some ferns, mom hit it there and you should just leave it there and not mess with it. But if, it, if there's some animal hit by a car or something and it needs help, th there are licensed rehabilitators that are all over the state that have training. Many of them have themselves been vaccinated for rabies because you can't work with wild animals without getting bit or scratched or whatever and put at risk. So the licensed rehabilitators that I think you can just go online, right, Dan, and find out who the rehabilitators are in your county, in your area. And every county has a, a conservation officer who is, inspects these licensed rehabilitators to make sure that they have the proper facilities and the training to do it safely and humanely for the people and the animals. 
So there is a whole system out there and the agencies that are invested with the responsibility for the safety of those animals and those people are the ones who are regulating. The way to help is to do the right thing. Baby cottontail rabbits. People don't realize that they don't even, they can't even poop for themselves. Their mom has to make them stimulate them to do that. And if you don't take over that responsibility, that animal dies a horrible death by these well-intentioned people that were putting food in one end and it wasn't coming out the other. I think the way people can help is to understand that the reason that these regulations are in place is to protect them, the people, and the animals, and to follow the law. And very broadly speaking, too, Jim, I mean, I think to just pull it back to a population level, you know, wild populations have survived for millennia without being saved by humans. Right. I mean, it's 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 a uniquely human characteristic for us to want to help, you know, to want to do something to help these populations. But sometimes the best thing that we can do to help is to just leave them alone. We have, in some respects, our, our intervention as humans, the things that we do uh, to the environment has been much more of a detriment to these wild populations than anything that we're ever going to do um, by just wanting to help. So sometimes the best thing to do is to just leave them alone. You took my my question out of my mouth and answered it before I could ask the, the question. I was, <laughs> I was going to ask, what can people do if you know, if they find a hurt animal, if they find a bat in their house, if they come into contact and they want to care for it, what are the things that they can actually do for the animal? And it sounds like they should just stick to finding a licensed wildlife rehabilitator or leaving it be because if they found a wild animal, it's probably got something wrong with it and it's best to let nature take its course. Yep. And I'll just, there's a little special caveat on bats. <laughs> so yeah, don't touch. If you find a, a bat, for example, in your home, which happens all the time, you know, don't, you know, a lot of people's first thought is, well, I'm just going to open the door and let it go. I would ask, I guess, as long as you are confident that nobody has had any contact with the bat, usually that's going to mean bites or scratches you or flies into you. Other situations where we're concerned where contact could occur and someone might not be aware of it would be, you know, waking up to find in the bat in the room where you've been asleep or finding a bat in a room with a person, an adult or a child who can't account for their time in the room with that bat. They may be impaired or they're just too young to tell you whether they had any contact with the bat. Those are situations where we would want that bat collected and you should call your local health department and discuss the situation with them before you release the bat. Because once, once the, it's gone, once you can't it's gone it. yeah, we can't test it and we can't know if it had rabies. And so and if we don't have the animal to test, then we have to recommend that the people who may have been exposed to the bat um, go through the rabies post-exposure treatment. So, you know, that's sort of the special situation with bats. And, and that's true, too, if they've had any direct contact with, say, a raccoon or a skunk or some of these other wild carnivores. Um, we would want you to try to collect the animal if it's gone to contact your local health department and your health care provider about, uh, particularly with the bite, uh, getting care for that bite. So, um, so that's just a little caveat. 
That's great. Dan, you had brought this up earlier with tuberculosis as one of those diseases that not only can pass from animals to people, but from people to animals. Here in Michigan, we deal a lot with bovine tuberculosis in deer, um, and it impacts our cattle industry, so potentially a food source for people, um, as well as sometimes I think we've had cases where hunters have been infected um, after handling a sick deer that they harvested. Um, could you talk a little bit more about bovine TB and how that kind of interacts with humans, our food source, you know, those that cattle industry, um, as well as the wild population? So bovine tuberculosis is a disease that the U.S. Department of Agriculture has been trying to eradicate for over a century. And one of the reasons for that is that there was a time before pasteurization was common for milk from cows that TB was quite common, especially in, in children, because there were cases of cattle, dairy cattle that had TB and they would shed the bacteria that causes uh, bovine tuberculosis in their milk and then infect children. And so it, there, there's very, there's a long history that um, from a public health perspective that that Kim could elaborate on. But um, at this point, it is a disease that is very important to the cattle industry. It has a huge economic implications for the cattle industry and for global trade. And as you mentioned, we still have, you know, now that we can do what's called whole genome sequencing of the bacteria that causes uh, tuberculosis, we can actually, it, it makes it possible for us to make inferences about who infected whom, for example. And we have at least six cases now of TB in humans that in Michigan that we know came from deer sources. So a couple of those were uh, people that were infected from cuts in the skin when they were gutting or working with infected deer. Uh, there were some respiratory infections in older people who had hunted deer in the past. But most recently, we have a situation of a patient who had was actually sick with bovine tuberculosis. They went into an emergency room with a respiratory infection and um, the, the staff at the hospital thought it was COVID. They presented with a collapsed lung, but actually when they worked up the case, they found out it was bovine tuberculosis. And now that Kim's group and others uh, in, the, in the Department of Health and Human Services have done their epidemiology, the evidence suggests, along with the, the whole genome sequences that we've got, that that person was infected in their youth when they were exposed to a deer in the TB area that was being rehabilitated illegally. So these aren't, you know, we don't have these regulations that restrict what animals people can own or rehabilitate for no reason. You know, we're not just trying to be killjoys or to uh, constrain people who want to help. You know, there are real reasons and real diseases that spread and between animals and humans. And, and TB is just one of them. It's here. And it's a good example when you, when you say, where did the deer get it? They got it from the cattle. So it's the 
livestock and the wildlife and the human populations, that tuberculosis is a prime example of a zoonotic disease. That's a disease that goes from people to animals and animals to people. And that's why the DNR regulates. You can't put out big bait piles for deer hunting um, because you congregate the deer and potentially spread tuberculosis or chronic wasting disease is another one of the big concerns that has a devastating impact at the population level and can certainly impact then a very important resource for Michigan uh, hunting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it isn't just baiting either, Jim, like you say. I mean, feeding, this is one of the things, you know, people get mad because, they, you know, they say, well, why can't we feed the deer or why can't we feed these animals? And because we just want to see them. Well, the reality is, when you feed wildlife like that, you're creating the conditions that make it way easier for these infectious diseases to be transmitted from animal to animal, both directly and, and indirectly uh, when they when uninfected animals eat contaminated feed, you know. So again, that's feeding is another one of these situations where it's not that we're trying to just be killjoys. But there are, there are reasons, there are good scientific and public health and animal health reasons that we implement these regulations. And it's not just done to, to be killjoys. Wow, we've heard so many great insights um, and had some great discussion on why keeping wildlife in captivity or even trying to help an injured wild animal without proper permits and facilities is not beneficial for people or the animals. You know, we really appreciate all the insights that our panelists have brought to us today. Um, and just a final recap for folks listening, if you do find a wild animal that looks injured, please, please contact a licensed wildlife rehabilitator for assistance, or better yet, just leave it be. A big thank you to our panelists today, Dr. Dan O'Brien, Dr. Kimberly Sines, and Dr. Jim Sikarski. Thanks so much for being with us today. Did you know that you can take your hunting and fishing regulations with you wherever you go? Have access to the information you need, when you need it, right on your smartphone. Just visit michigan.gov slash dnrdigest to download the applicable hunting digest before you head out to the woods or the Michigan Fishing Guide before you hit the water. Download the most up-to-date regulations available today at michigan.gov slash dnrdigests. Now is your opportunity to win a Wild Talk podcast mug. As a thank you to our listeners, we'll be giving away a mug or two every episode. Our May mug winners are Michael Krizicki and Noah Saul. Check your email as we'll be getting in touch with you soon. They answered the soft shell turtle is the only turtle species in Michigan that has a tubular snout. Um, and the hint that went with that is it's also the only species that has a flat, scutless carapace. Yeah, congratulations, Michael and Noah. That is my favorite turtle in Michigan, so I'm so glad you knew it. To be entered into the drawing this month, test your wildlife knowledge and answer our wildlife quiz question. This month's question is, what plant generates heat around its flower to melt the snow? Hint, the flower stinks. <laughs> <laughs>
and not in a good way, which might give you a clue to its name. All right, you know what to do, folks. Email your name and answer to us at dnr-wildlife at michigan.gov to be entered for a chance to win a mug. Be sure to include the subject line as mug me and submit your answers by June 15th. We'll announce winners and the answer on next month's podcast, so be sure to listen in and see if you've won and also to find out what the next quiz question will be. Good luck. Now back to the podcast. Welcome back to Wild Talk. Now let's dig into the mailbag and answer some of your questions. Hannah, did you have a question for us today regarding pheasant hunting? I do. Uh, James emailed in saying they purchased their hunting license today and are not sure if a pheasant endorsement is needed. They will be hunting pheasant this year. That's an excellent question, James. And the free pheasant endorsement that was required in 2019 and 2020 has been discontinued and no longer required for hunters pursuing pheasants. However, new this year, in addition to the base license, House Bill 4313, passed in 2020 by the Michigan legislature, now requires all pheasant hunters 18 and older hunting pheasants on public land in the Lower Peninsula or on lands enrolled in the hunting access program to have a $25 pheasant license. So if you are hunting pheasant on private lands statewide or public lands in the Upper Peninsula, If you are a lifetime license holder, are 17 years of age or younger, or are only hunting pheasant at a game bird hunting preserve, you do not need the new pheasant license. Now, pheasant hunting information and regulations will be in the 2021 Hunting Digest, which will be available online and at DNR license retailers around July 1st. You can also visit michigan.gov slash small game for the 2021 pheasant release information. Well, I received a question from Julia, who is trying to plan her uh, summer camping trips. She wants to go up to northern Michigan this summer, and she's been wondering about wildlife while camping and if or what actions she can take to prevent attracting wildlife to her campsite. This is an excellent question. There are a few tips uh, you can take to your campsite to try to prevent critters really from crashing your campsite and being attracted to your food. So just a few things you'll want to keep in mind. Uh, The first one is to not keep food in your tents. You'll want to store any type of food in an airtight container. Um, This includes foods that you plan to eat, but also if you're bringing pets, any pet food, you'll want to make sure it's in a vehicle trunk or Uh, suspended from trees so that it's out of reach of wildlife, um, both high enough to be out of reach of a curious bear, because we do have bears in northern Michigan and the UP, so it needs to be up high enough um, to be out of reach of a bear, but also away from the tree enough to be so that like a raccoon on a limb can't reach out and grab it. And I can tell you from personal experience, if you put a backpack on a limb, 
raccoons can probably reach it and they'll get into your backpack and steal your marshmallows. So make sure that no <laughs> animals can reach your uh, your bags or your food sacks or anything like that when you string it up from a tree. Second, you want to keep your camp clean, uh, clean up any trash and wipe down picnic tables or chairs, anything that might have food debris or spill on it, because those wrappers and odors can still attract wildlife. Something else to consider is to cook at a distance from your campsite and wash your utensils shortly after eating. And again, um, store your trash as you would your food. So making sure your trash is in an airtight container or in your vehicle because burning or burying your waste can also attract wildlife. And just keep in mind that while you're camping, wildlife may wander through your campsite. You're out in nature, you wanna spend some time outdoors, that's where the wildlife lives. So it's very common for animals to walk through your campsite in the middle of the night. And if there are no enticing food rewards to grab their attention, they should just continue on through. You can visit michigan.gov forward slash wildlife for additional tips on preventing encounters with wildlife while camping. Now, as we zip this segment to a close, remember, if you have questions about wildlife or hunting, you can call 517-284-WILD or email us at dnr-wildlife at michigan.gov, and your question could be featured on our next mailbag. Did you know that Michigan lies where the Atlantic and Mississippi migratory flyways intersect? This brings over 340 species of birds to Michigan each year. Follow My Birds on Facebook to learn more about our feathered friends, year-round guided bird walks, stewardship events, and community science opportunities near you. MyBirds is an education and outreach program created by Audubon Great Lakes in the Michigan DNR. Search MyBirds on Facebook. That's M-I Birds. We'd like to wrap up this episode with a few quick tips for you to try if you're experiencing issues with Canada geese on your property this summer. Yes, as we mentioned earlier, geese are especially attracted to lush lawns that are heavily fertilized, watered, and mow. So if you live on a lake and you have geese frequently visiting your yard, try to make your lawn less attractive to them by allowing your grass to grow longer and not fertilizing or watering it. Especially don't mow all the way to the water's edge. This tall grass along the edge of the water can create a natural barrier and the geese may be less likely to move through the tall grass into the rest of your yard. And make sure you're not feeding the geese on purpose, especially if you don't want them hanging around. Feeding them can cause them to get used to hanging around people, which could make them harder to scare away and may make it harder to get them to leave the area in general. Yeah, they very quickly become expectant and expect you to show up and feed them. So just avoid, avoid that altogether by not starting. You can also employ some scare tactics to frighten them away. Using a combination of loud noises, such as shell crackers, bird alarms, or bird bangers, uh, Stress cries, screamers, electronic noise systems, along with visual deterrents like a bird scare balloon, uh, mylar scare tape, and plastic flags. Now, these things used in any combination can often uh, eliminate any conflicts with Canada geese, but also lots of other types of waterfowl. Yes, and yelling and running after them can work well, too. Um, I had some migrating geese stop by 
after he put down some grass seed one spring. And that's what I did to chase them off repeatedly for a few days. And then, you know, they got the message and moved on. Thankfully, they didn't eat all my grass seed. So I do have a lawn, but <laughs> they uh, they were quite hungry. Thought it was a good place to stop by for a snack. But I do this with all the critters that come through the yard that I don't want around. <laughs> chase after them young and screaming acting a fool and it does seems the to trick be every time <laughs> it does i've scared away coyotes and fox geese it does work especially if you come out of nowhere and surprise them keep in mind that in june and july canada geese are molting and are unable to fly during this time you may want to try putting up just a temporary barrier between your yard and the water to help keep the flightless geese out of your yard I hear snow fence can work well in this type of scenario. Additional information on how to handle conflicts with geese, including some population control options, are available at michigan.gov wildlife. And of course, there's always the hunting season. So if hunting is an option in your area, waterfall seasons aren't far away. You can find out about the Canada goose hunting season dates and bag limits in the 2021 Waterfall Hunting Digest, which will be available in the next month or two at michigan.gov forward slash waterfall. Well, folks, that does it for this episode of Wild Talk. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll see you back here for our next episode in July. This has been the Wild Talk Podcast, your monthly podcast airing the first of each month and offering insights into the world of wildlife across the state of Michigan. You can reach the Wildlife Division at 517-284-9453 or dnr-wildlife at michigan.gov.